Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, Rachel Maddow, The Young Turks, and On the Media. Today, August 2nd, 1934, was the day that... uh, German President Paul von Hindenburg died and Chancellor Adolf Hitler became the absolute dictator of Germany under the title of Führer, or leader. He assured his people that the Third Reich would last for a thousand years. It was going to be the beginning of a thousand years of peace. The biblically described thousand years of peace, you know, the the same stuff that George W. Bush is into of you know, if there's, a, if there's a, only a war in the Middle East, war will bring about peace. Of course, Hitler's Reich only lasted 11 years, but nonetheless, he, he thought it would uh, do a little better than that. Now, the reason that I think that that anniversary is of particular consequence, particular importance is that the main way that Hitler achieved power, held power, and, and made his country insane, and there's really no other way to describe it, it was insanity. I mean, people were followers of a cult, a personality cult of Hitler, was by essentially setting aside the rule of law. The passage of the enabling laws shortly after the Reichstaggebüge was burned, the parliament building was burned by Marius van der Lubbe, the, this uh, 28-year-old, as I recall, Dutch. Some suggest he was mentally ill. I mean, who knows? Dutch communist. And, you know, there's still debate about whether or not he had help from Hitler's, Hitler's guys, the brown shirts. Probably did. But uh, there was a book published in Germany this year in German suggesting that uh, he actually did act alone. He had tried to set several buildings on fire in the weeks prior to his successful attempt on the parliament, and they had been unsuccessful. But it was, it was a tool that Hitler used brilliantly to say, that, you know, there are enemies among us, and so we have to change the law. And he passed the enabling laws, and he got this through parliament, that said that the rule of law, in Germany that had been set up after the end of World War I, the rule of law, the democracy in Germany, would be modified so that the government could tap telephones if they thought it had to do with terrorism. The terrorist, specifically Marius van der Lubbe, the guy who burned down the Reichstag, he, by the way, he was arrested along with seven or eight, I forget, uh, co-conspirators, and uh, van der Lubbe was executed. But in any case, the enabling laws that were passed by Hitler, number one, said that uh, you didn't have the right to a trial. You didn't have the right to face your accuser, number two. You didn't, you know, the, the government could use hearsay against you. They could tap your telephones if they needed to without going through a court, without getting a court order. They could open your mail without a court order. And you could be held without charges if you were suspected of terrorism, without bail. 
And these these laws so concerned the parliament, the German parliament, that they put a four-year sunset provision on them. That if the state of emergency that had come about in Germany as a consequence of that terrorist attack of, of the parliament building, the equivalent of our capital building being burned down by, by this, uh, this uh, Dutch terrorist, if that state of emergency passed, then these laws would expire. I mean, the parallels between the enabling laws in Germany and the, and the Patriot Act in the United States are absolutely spooky to anybody who's actually read and studied both of them. But now the Bush administration wants to take it to the next step. This in today's Washington Post. And I'm amazed that this wasn't, you know, the screaming headline on ABC, CBS, NBC, everywhere, CNN. It should be everywhere. I only saw it in the Washington Post. It, it, it Maybe by now the New York Times has picked it up. It wasn't in the morning, this morning's paper, at least that I saw. I didn't see it in the Wall Street Journal. I can't say I read every single story, every single inch, but I was looking for something like this. But in the Washington Post, buried on page four, an article by Washington Post staff writer R. Jeffrey Smith, A Bush administration plan for special military courts seeks to expand and the reach and authority of such commissions, in quotes. Okay, so first of all, they're renaming these things. They're no longer, they're no longer courts. It's, they're, they're commissions. To include trials for the first time of people who are not members of al-Qaeda or the Taliban, and are not directly involved in acts of international terrorism, according to officials familiar with the proposal. You get this? The Bush administration is, this is a draft plan circulating around Congress right now among the Republicans that would essentially say, we're going to change the rules of the game. Yes, we've had this this thing called the Constitution for you know, 230 years, but uh, time to throw that out the window. After all, it's a post-9-11 world. And so we don't need this, uh, you know, you have the right to face your accuser's stuff. From the, from the uh, what, the Sixth Amendment, the Seventh Amendment, I forget which one, one, of, one or the other. We don't, we don't need this, you have the right to make bail. We don't need this, you have the right to a speedy trial. We don't need this, you have the, 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 the right to know what you're charged with. We don't need this stuff. They want to apply the rules of Guantanamo to you and me. If my read of this is correct, and I'll, you know, I'll just I'll read most of the, I'll Let me share a chunk of the story with you. You can make up your own mind. I just read you the first paragraph. Bush, a draft Bush administration for special military courts seeks to expand the region authority of such commissions to include trials for the first time of people who are not members of al-Qaeda or the Taliban and are not directly involved in acts of international terrorism. The plan, which would replace a military trial system ruled illegal by the Supreme Court in June, would also allow the Secretary of Defense to add crimes at will. In other words, Don Rumsfeld can simply make up a law. He can say, for example, it's now illegal to call George W. Bush a doofus. And if you and if you break this particular law, you will be held at one of these commissions, before one of these commissions. Okay. 
It would allow the Secretary of Defense to add crimes at will to those under the military court's jurisdiction. The two provisions would be likely to put more individuals than previously expected before military juries, officials and independent experts said. The draft proposed legislation set to be discussed at two Senate hearings today is controversial inside and outside the administration. And this is straight up. I'm reading this from the Washington Post. Is controversial inside and outside the administration because defendants would be denied many protections guaranteed by the civilian and traditional military criminal justice systems. Under the proposed procedures, defendants would lack rights to confront accusers. They would lack the right to exclude hearsay accusations or to bar evidence obtained through rough or coercive interrogations. They would not be guaranteed a public or speedy trial and would lack the right to choose their military counsel, who in turn would not be guaranteed equal access to evidence held by prosecutors. Detainees would also not be guaranteed the right to be present at their own trial if their absence is deemed necessary to protect national security or individuals. Defendants can be tried in absentia. John D. Hudson, the Navy's top... Now, this I'm still reading from this piece from, the, from today's Washington Post by R. Jeffrey Smith. You should read this. John D. Hudson, the, the Navy's top uniformed lawyer from 1997 to 2000, said the rules would evidently allow the government to tell a prisoner, quote, we know you're guilty, we can't tell you why, but there's a guy, we can't tell you who, who told us something. We can't tell you what, but you're guilty. End quote. This is the Navy's top lawyer. For the last three years of the of the Clinton administration, Bruce Fine, an associate deputy deputy attorney general during the Reagan administration, said after reviewing the leaked draft that, quote, the theme of the government seems to be they are guilty anyway, and therefore due process can be slighted, end quote. With these procedures, Fine said, this is a guy from the Reagan administration. He said, quote, there is a real danger of getting a wrong verdict that would let lower echelon detainees rot for 30 years at Guantanamo Bay because of evidence contrived by personal enemies. Administration officials have said that the exceptional trial procedures are warranted because the fight against terrorism requires heavy reliance on classified information. They can even prosecute you for hearsay obtained under torture. This is mind-boggling. This is absolutely mind-boggling. Is it the end of democracy in the United States? And with you, my love. And there's nothing in the world that I would rather see than your smile, my love. For united we stand, divided we fall. And if our backs to see what terrifying goals 
is worth panning for among today's top stories. Eureka! First story on today's Rachel Maddow Show front page is about proposed legislation to be discussed in two Senate hearings today. There has never been a more boring lead-in to a story than what I just said. I know. I am fully aware of that. But listen to what they are proposing. This is so unbelievable to me. I almost think it can't be true. I almost can't believe it even from these guys. It's on page A4 of the Washington Post today. You know the Supreme Court ruling that said the military tribunals at Guantanamo weren't constitutional, right? Uh, Since then, they've needed to go back to the drawing board, come up with uh, new rules, a new approach to doing these tribunals. And and I have talked in the past about how awful their new proposed tribunal rules are turning out to be. They keep saying they're just like what they use in The Hague and in Rwanda and all the other places where they try war crimes. And they're totally not. They're just lying about that. Well, today in the Senate, according to page 84 of the Washington Post, Uh, There is a new development in what they are proposing. The military tribunals, these kangaroo courts, right, will no longer just be for people who are suspected by the United States government of being al-Qaeda or in the Taliban. No longer for people who are suspected of international terrorism. No longer for people suspected of harboring al-Qaeda or the Taliban or international terrorists. Sure, they would all be subjected to these military tribunals. But you know who else they want the military tribunals for? Anyone. The new proposal from the White House is that Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, will be allowed at will by his own discretion to choose any crime as the basis for someone to be subjected to one of these tribunals. So Donald Rumsfeld gets to pick any crime, and anybody who is suspected or accused of having committed that crime will not be allowed to participate in the normal American justice system. They will instead go to these military tribunals. Any crime, Donald Rumsfeld gets to decide. Murder, bank robbery, jaywalking, leaving the free speech zone in which they confine your protest when Bush comes to your town, anything. Donald Rumsfeld decides who goes to the military tribunals instead of the regular court system. It is his full discretion. And if you go to the tribunals... You do not have the right to be present at your trial. You do not have the right to confront your accusers. Hearsay can be used against you. Evidence obtained through coercion can be used against you. You are not guaranteed a public trial. You are not guaranteed a speedy trial. You are not guaranteed the right to choose your lawyer. Your lawyer is not guaranteed the right to see the evidence against you. And Donald Rumsfeld personally gets to decide who is subjected to that for their trial. You know, and if you're okay with rules like that for people suspected of being in Al-Qaeda, because by that suspicion, they're obviously guilty. How do you feel about rules like that for anybody, for you, for yourself? If you are suspected of committing a crime that Donald Rumsfeld has decided deserves this kind of tribunal, are you willing to be tried in a court like that where you don't even have the right to be there? Because the new proposal from the Bush administration is for Donald Rumsfeld to be personally able to designate any crime, any person arrested for anything to go through that system instead of what we know as the normal American court system. I am not kidding. And this is on page A4 of the Washington Post today. It will apparently be debated by two Senate committees today. This is the kind of thing that should kind of bring the country to a screeching halt, isn't it? I was Wonder why you don't get a one thing done in the night. Don't like the direction you are going to. Don't like 
Let's give you a fun little uh, conservative perspective on all this, because, you know, we've been talking here about all this liberal stuff about, oh, trying to work together towards peace and diplomacy rather than bombing everybody. Yeah. So let's uh, let's uh, throw a little red meat out there. Grasstops USA is a player, significant player within conservative circles. Uh, their executive director, Christopher uh, Carmucci, I guess, sat on the exclusive host committee for last year's high-profile tribute to then-House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. He was there with Grover Norquist. Uh, he's also a member of the National Coalition to End Judicial Filibusters, the conservative umbrella group run by Manuel Miranda, the former staffer to Senate Majority, Majority Leader Bill Frist. So they're in, in this group. They're connected to these people. They don't necessarily work with Frist and Delay on a daily basis, but they've attended meetings with them. They're in some same similar groups with them. Uh, so they decided, hey, they want to weigh in on this Lebanon thing, too. So they sent out a mass email to all their uh, members. It said that it was, a quote, a spectator's guide to World War III, the Lebanese front. The title was, Kill Them All, Let Allah Sort Them Out. Hmm. One for everybody. That's the title of the, of the whole thing. Yes. Right. I mean, that's, that's not like somebody said, uh, you know, sort of extemporaneously. No. It was like published and printed on a leaflet and everything. Exactly. And it was not some uh, wild-eyed caller, listener, right. blog. It's the organization it wrote it. thoughtful. Kill them all, let Allah sort them out, and here are some of the things that were in that email. A disproportionate response is the best kind. What would a proportionate Israeli response be? Snatching two Hezbollah fighters, torturing them to death, cutting off their genitals, and stuffing in them in their mouths? They're always with the genitals, these conservative yeah. guys. They're also, obsessed that, with that. By the way, is that what happened to the Israeli soldiers? No, that's not what happened at all. Uh, continuing in the email, Lebanon used to be a nice little country before sons of Allah got their blood-smeared hands on it. Of course, ignoring the irony that the Israelis are the ones that are doing the bombings in Lebanon and killing people not the sons of Allah. Uh, it continues, Believe it or not, Beirut was once the most advanced and prosperous country in the Arab world because the majority of Lebanese were Christians. There's so many things wrong with that statement, I'm going to yeah. just keep on going. Uh, the email entitled, Kill Them All, Let Allah Sort Them Out from this conservative advocacy group, Grasstops USA, also said, Israel needs to step up its airstrikes and send in the troops. Can you say massive deployment, baby? To do the job... Only on uh, ground forces can do to resurrect and reconfigure one of my favorite Vietnam era slogans: "Kill them all and let Allah sort them out." You know, I, uh, I'm not, I'm concerned about the policy and I'm concerned about the direction the country's going. All those things, but I'm more bothered by the lack of humanity that we have in this country. I am more bothered that there are serious people meeting with other serious people, exchanging ideas, where they get excited about massive deployment. Massive deployment is inevitably followed by massive death, and it is sometimes necessary, but nobody should ever be excited about it. And it's if you ever want to hear people talk about what war really is, you know, listen to somebody like Wes Clark uh, Sr., uh, and perhaps Jr., but, but Wes Clark uh, Sr., who we interviewed, and, and we ran the clip there. On the, look, you never want to do it, ever, 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 ever. And to get excited about it, you're a bad guy. These guys are bad people. You don't get excited about massive deployment. For crying out loud. Massive deployment, baby. Baby. Well, you know why? Because guys like this that run these conservative advocacy groups, they're Dungeons and Dragons guys. 
they want to cast a die and they want to have an 18th in strength and a 17 in wisdom or whatever. They want to be warlocks or whatever they with triple evil spells or whatever they do. Yeah, well, that is pretty cool. Okay, they they didn't they didn't go to war. They didn't see their uh, friend get their head blown off. They never they lost they never saw people die in front of their eyes. Try interviewing a soldier. Yeah, conservative uh, liberal doesn't matter. Conser- soldiers don't want to kill people and they don't want to be killed and 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 that is uh, consistent throughout time. They don't get excited by it because it's them who dies. To you, it's Dungeons and Dragons and Lord of the Rings. To say nothing of the civilians killed when a massive deployment occurs. That's what follows. Starting with a very current issue and one of our favorite guests, author and University of Chicago law professor Jeffrey Stone. His book, called Perilous Times, Free Speech in Wartime, chronicles White House efforts to squelch the press from the Sedition Act of 1798 right on through the war on terrorism. Much has happened since we first discussed the book in December 2004, so Stone will return in a few minutes to update us. But first, he explains how he organized his book around the six moments in American history when free speech took a hit. He said it always happened in time of war, or something like war. First was when the United States was on the verge of war with France. 1798, the Federalists made it a crime for any person to criticize the government, the Congress, or the president. During the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus, which resulted in the detention of many individuals for their dissent. During World War I, uh, Woodrow Wilson enacted legislation that made it a crime to criticize the war or the draft. During World War II, although the primary civil liberties issues was the internment of Japanese Americans, the Roosevelt administration also attempted to denaturalize and deport individuals who were deemed American fascists. During the Cold War, uh, the United States slipped into a frenzy in which tens of thousands of Americans were humiliated, were exposed, were fired, were blacklisted, and were prosecuted for their political beliefs. And during the Vietnam War, the Nixon administration engaged in widespread surveillance of political anti-war organizations and attempted to intimidate and harass those organizations. Let's go back to 1798. And the first person ever to have been jailed under the Sedition Act was a man named Matthew Lyon. Right. Lyon was a congressman from Vermont. He was a frontiersman, a very much self-made man. Um, He was uh, opposed to the Federalists, who tended to be much more upper crust than the Republicans of Jefferson and Madison. And Lyon was eventually prosecuted for giving a speech in which he accused the Adams administration of being concerned primarily with its own pomp and its own ridiculous uh, self-importance. And for that, he was uh, sentenced to prison. 
basically, his crime is that he had a big mouth, but no lack of patriotism. No, exactly right. Many of the characters in this book were individuals who had deeply felt and passionate political views that were not within the mainstream, views that in many instances eventually came to be accepted. And we're very much in debt for their persistence, uh, their stubbornness, and their insistence on continuing to express their views, even over the efforts of the government to suppress them. Now, the most cinematic character in your book is probably Molly Steimer, who wasn't allowed to stay anywhere very long by dint of the fact that she couldn't keep her mouth shut. Yeah, she was my favorite character in all of this 200 years of history. Uh, Steimer arrived in the United States as an immigrant from uh, Russia. Uh, immediately upon arriving, she found work in a factory. She began reading and was curious and became, over time, a trade unionist and eventually an admirer of Emma Goldman and Bakunin. Uh, during World War I, she opposed the United States' participation in the war. She was arrested and prosecuted for essentially encouraging opposition to the war. Finally, in the early 1920s, the government decided to deport her to the Soviet Union. And at that time, there was a railroad strike, and Molly Steimer refused to leave her prison cell because she refused to ride on a train, which was being operated by scabs. After the strike finally ended, she was sent to the Soviet Union. The Russian Revolution had evolved in ways that she was not happy about, and she became uh, a vehement protester against the Soviet government. Um, After several years, she was uh, deported then from the Soviet Union to Germany, being, so far as I know, the only person in history ever to be deported both from the United States and from the Soviet Union. She was a quite remarkable person. I mean, Molly Steimer was four foot nine inches tall. She weighed about 90 pounds, and she was as determined and fierce and deeply committed to her principles as, as anyone in American history. Now, of the six eras of unfree speech that you talk about in your book, you pick out three as the most egregious. What were they? Well, the period of the Sedition Act of 1798, World War I, and the Cold War were by far the most egregious. And what made them um, so extreme is that in each of those instances, politicians and or government officials went out of their way to exploit and to use opportunistically the natural fear and anxiety that is produced in any wartime situation. So in 1798, the Federalists attempted to take advantage of the impending war with France to enact legislation that would enable them to try to put the Republican Party of Jefferson and Madison entirely out of business by prosecuting anyone who was critical of the Adams administration. Now, in the other two cases, basically you say the same pernicious forces at work, that the principal aim of suppressing free speech wasn't necessarily to increase the security of the country, but simply to repress a voice that would question the people in power. In other words, partisan voices. Exactly right. So during the Cold War, for instance, Republicans like Joseph McCarthy and Richard Nixon saw the opportunity to use the red card as a way to rally Americans to take advantage of their fear to exacerbate their fear and therefore to essentially say that you cannot trust the Democrats, the Democrats are not adequately protecting us against the Red Menace, only Republicans can do that for you. During World War I, uh, President Wilson led the United States into a war where we had not been attacked, and he therefore faced the problem of both creating an outraged public that would be willing to make the sacrifices that war demands, and also uh, attempting to turn people against those who would be dissenting, because there were many individuals who opposed our entry into the war because, in fact, we hadn't been attacked. Where do you think the Bush administration stacks up during the war on terror to these other epochs? Well, certainly the Bush administration has reacted to post-9-11 circumstances in ways that are similar to those that existed in the past. One of the primary ways that the Bush administration has attempted to 
shape public discourse is by controlling information and by a kind of obsessive secrecy. You control public debate by simply denying individuals access to critical information. But if one talks about the magnitude of repression, uh, the truth is there is no real comparison. For many periods in our history, it was, in fact, a crime for an individual to attack the government or the conduct of a war. Certainly, the speeches of people like Howard Dean and John Kerry in 2004 would have been criminal uh, during World War I, during the Civil War in 1798, and yet that would be totally unthinkable today. But it's also the case that it's important to recognize that we have overreacted, and those overreactions matter. As you've noted in your book, 80% of American history has not occurred in wartime, and during that 80%, people have not been jailed for expressing themselves politically. But now we are in a time, which our president has said we may not see the end of for a very long time, of permanent amorphous war against terror. What are we to make of a time of war without end? It's an especially dangerous one if we truly believe that it is a war without end. One consolation one can take from these historical periods is that each of them was relatively short-lived and that once they ended, the nation saw again that it behaved badly and, in a sense, strengthened its commitment to civil liberties. But in a situation in which one believes that this is a permanent war on terrorism, as I happen not to believe, but if one believes that, then one should be even more cautious about making these sorts of compromises because there won't be a light at the end of the tunnel. Jeffrey Stone, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Jeffrey Stone is the Harry Calvin Jr. Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago and author of Perilous Times. So let me now bring back Jeff Stone. In recent months, we have seen greater pressure put on the media. The more they disclose what the government regards as programs crucial to national security, the more pressure the media feel. Yes, I think the administration has clearly demonized the media to treat them as if that by disclosing knowledge about highly problematic and in some instances, in my view, illegal programs, that they are doing something that is disloyal and that undermines the national security. The calls for prosecution of the New York Times for publishing information about, for example, the NSA surveillance program by officials as high up as Attorney General Gonzalez is one that has to cause a great deal of lost sleep within the upper reaches of the Times. There's never been in the history of the United States a criminal prosecution of the media for publishing information that the government wanted to keep confidential. And the fact that the administration is rattling its sabers about such an issue has to send some shockwaves to the media. When the media do get in trouble with the government, they tend to find some relief in the courts. And that seems to be less and less a safe haven for the free press. Well, on the one hand, because of the uh, makeup of the courts today, uh, the vast majority of federal judges have been appointed by Republican presidents, and seven of the nine Supreme Court justices have been appointed by Republican presidents. And for that reason, the courts are probably less sympathetic to an aggressive interpretation of the freedom of the press than otherwise might be the case. But I I think what the Supreme Court has demonstrated is that they have learned, the justices have learned the lesson of history. Uh, They know that their predecessors on 
numerous occasions in wartime have bent over backwards to give deference to the claims of the executive about what was necessary for the national security. And they do not want it to be their own legacy that they made the same type of mistake that their predecessors did when they approved some of the measures during the McCarthy period, when they approved, for example, the uh, internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. So I think they're approaching these issues with a much more careful scrutiny, and that stood them in very good stead. So ultimately, since you take the long view in perilous times, do you see this as a rather elastic process? Do you foresee a time in the near future when things return to what many of us regard as normal? In every historical episode, once the crisis has passed, things have returned to normal, and more often than not, they've actually improved. I think the lessons that we will learn from What's transpired thus far since 9-11 with respect to the freedom of the press has to do with the ability of the government, of the executive branch in particular, to put into place programs that are secret. And I believe that in the end, the judgment will be that the government should not be allowed to create secret programs and that some degree of oversight both by Congress and by the American people is more important. And ultimately, I expect we'll see legislation to that effect. Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. My pleasure. Jeffrey Stone is the Harry Calvin Jr. Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago and author of Perilous Times. Maddow Show, we do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, <laughs> giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's right-wing political tactic, and I will admit I am guessing at this one. I do not know if this is what they're trying to do, but it is the only way that I can make sense of what's in this morning's news. The right-wing political tactic, I hope, is at work here, is bluffing. I th- I, which I think is what you would call it. It's, it's the act of proposing something so radical, so extreme, so beyond what you could possibly ever hope to get away with that you change the terms of the debate simply by the bluff. You, you blow up all sense of what's reasonable, all sense of what might possibly be considered okay in the hopes that after your bluff, you'll actually be able to get away with something more extreme than you might have been able to get away with before your bluff destroyed all sense of proportion. That is what I hope is going on. As you heard in the last hour on the front page on The Rachel Maddow Show, the Bush administration is proposing what I think is possibly the scariest yet super extreme expansion of executive power. The kangaroo court tribunals at Guantanamo, those military tribunals, in the response to the Supreme Court ruling, which said those tribunals need to be changed, the Bush, administration's want, Bush administration wants to make those tribunals not be just for terrorism suspects anymore. Right now, those tribunals operate under the 2001 Bush executive order, which says that, therefore, suspected members of al-Qaeda and the Taliban, suspected other international terrorists and people suspected of harboring those suspects. Now they want anybody 
to be subjected to those tribunals. Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, just gets to decide personally who gets to be subject to one of those tribunals instead of the normal U.S. court system. And if Donald Rumsfeld says you get the military tribunal instead of the court system, you do not have the right to be present at your trial. They can try you without you there. You do not have the right to confront your accusers. Hearsay can be used against you at your trial. Evidence obtained through coercion can be used against you. You're not guaranteed a public trial. You're not guaranteed a speedy trial. They can detain you for 30 years before they bring you up on charges. You're not guaranteed the right to choose your lawyer. Your lawyer is not guaranteed the right to see the evidence against you. And who gets to decide who's subject to that kind of justice? Donald Rumsfeld personally. My only guess here, my hope against hope, is that they're proposing something this crazy, this insane, as a bluff that they're, they're trying to change the standards for reasonable discourse so much that they'll be able to get away with some slightly less heinous version of this plan, something that would be unimaginable without the shock to the system caused by what they are proposing today. That's my best hope. And this is admittedly the most hopeful underbelly ever because not being hopeful about this is just too alarming. I was sitting, waiting, wishing you believed in superstitions they may be Someone else who has their own blog is Michelle Malkin. She is the unfortunately hot, uh, I believe, Filipino-American uh, who is a loathsome character. Her opinions are grotesque. Do you think she's hot? I do. I'm going to be dead honest about it. Uh, and for those of you watching on the YoungTurks.com, you're going to get to judge for yourself because we're going to show you uh, what she looks like in just a second. First, we have a clip with her and Bill O'Reilly, I believe, on Fox News Channel, where she tells us, oh, that little Kana massacre, that's just hype and marketing. It's no big deal. Civilians getting killed? It's no sweat off of Michelle Malkin's fairly pretty ass. Uh, and then later, she's going to tell us about how all Muslims are guilty on her own blog. First, let's start with the O'Reilly clip. Here is Malkin on Fox News Channel. Why doesn't the rest of the world accept your analysis? Because they are intoxicated. They are clouded by this moral equivalence that has set in um, over the world for the past several several decades. And I think it behooves us to fight against that, to claw against that, because the manufactured outrage that Kana is not really about the deaths at Kana. It is about something much larger. It is about the jihad du jour uh, that these members of the you know, religion of perpetual outrage um, are always ginning up. I mean, if it's not Kana, it's something else. No, I got it. It's Abu Ghraib. It's beauty pageants. And I think we have to understand <laughs> the context in which these jihadis no, are. All right, manufactured if the, outrage. If it's not jihads, it's a beauty pageant. And when Miss Tennessee took that gun and and, and, and took out that uh, church, I tell you, I was. It's manufactured outrage. That's all. 
All right. First Hilarious. of all, j- jihad du jour. I don't know what that means. She's just making up stupid words uh, that you know she thinks make her sound smart, but she sounds like an idiot. It goes uh, good with ratatouille. I understand. Is that I don't right? know what the hell she's talking about. She's uh, then she talks about how the Kana massacre is a uh, you know manufactured outrage. Well, if you can get outraged about you know fifty six civilians, most of them women and children, being killed. You got to manufacture outrage about that. There's something wrong with you, man. You're not human. If you if you think that's manufactured outrage, she's bordering on Ann Coulter lingo there. Well, she's trying. Oh, she's, absolutely. She's going for the crown. There's no question about it. That's her strategy. You know, she know, listen. When somebody like that talks about marketing strategy, they're talking about the issue that's closest to their heart. Ann Coulter, Michelle Malkin, they're self marketers. They're very very good at it. And what she is clearly marketing herself as the new Ann Coulter because people are think think Anne's imploding, the diet pill thing or whatever it is. People think Anne's, you know, shaky right now. So people are dropping her column and so on. And she wants to be the new Ann Coulter. She's auditioning for the role. And no, and she runs this blog that I was talking about. And it gets the right wingers love it because she throws out red meat of hate after hate after hate. And they eat it up. They gulp it up. And then she makes money off that blog. Look, everybody's trying to make money off of different things. But it's a question of what are you willing to stoop to to get it? And she's willing to stoop as low as it gets. Now, look at the other thing she said there. Oh, they're outraged either about a beauty pageant or Abu Ghraib where we tortured people or Kana where we, you know, where civilians were killed, men, women, and children. I mean, how do you put those three things in the same topic and dismiss all of them? Look, if you say, hey, look, the P- Muslim fundamentalists getting outraged over beauty pageants or a cartoon is outrageous, you're making a legitimate point. I get it. That's fine. But to put the cartoon and the deaths of all those women and children in the same category, it's grotesque. See, here's a point of view I disagree with but can understand. If somebody says, look... I think they're wrong, but somebody could legitimately say Israel, in order to defend itself, has to conduct these attacks, and it's tragic and terrible that civilians, and particularly these young children, were killed in it. That I understand. For somebody to go on and on about how it's a manufactured outrage, which so many people are doing, it's sociopathic. Mm -hmm. This woman is a sociopath. Well, it only gets worse. So let's go to her. uh, See, on her blog, she does this little uh, video blogging, you know, which is a poor man's version of the Young Turks, I suppose. It does it for a couple of minutes. She gets up there. Uh, and speaks about the whatever idiot things are filling her head that day. And a couple of days ago, the thought that came to her was that, hey, you know what, it's not just one Muslim doing a killing. For example, what she talks about in the beginning is that guy who in Washington State went into the Jewish Center and killed one person and shot six others. She says, no, 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 it's a conspiracy. All Muslims want to do it. And she says, oh, it's just, you know, a myth about that it's just one Muslim attacker at a time. In fact, it's the whole religion that has to be tarred. Didn't your family get the memo? Uh, apparently, I missed that memo. But, hey, I'll look in the mail again. So <laughs> let's, let's listen to Michelle Malkin here, and then we'll rip her ass apart. On the front burner today, the myth of the lone Muslim attacker. On Friday afternoon, Naveed Afzal Haq forced his way through the security door of the Jewish Federation building in downtown Seattle. He reportedly held his gun to the head of a 13-year-old girl, hiding behind a child to facilitate murder. Sound familiar? As he opened fire, Hawk reportedly announced, I am a Muslim American angry at Israel. Chaos ensued as jihad unfolded in the Pacific Northwest. Hawk's words and his motive are clear as day. He told a 911 dispatcher he was angry about the war in Iraq. He hated Jews. 
but muddled media elites and PC law enforcement officials are doing their best to obscure Huck's fatal message. After all, Huck was a nice, quiet guy. He won an essay contest for a U.S. Institute of Peace scholarship. In October 2002, black Muslim convert John Muhammad and protege Lee Malvo were convicted for their roles in a three-week terror shooting spree. Ten were killed. Malvo's jailhouse drawings spewed jihadi hate mongering. Lone operators? Naveed Hawk has plenty of company. There's no mystery about it. It's the jihad, stupid. Till next event, I'm Michelle Malkin for Hot Air. I, I don't know if she's being self-referential there with that ending, with the stupid stuff, but uh, we edited that because she went on and listed like six other people at roughly who were happening to be Muslims and killed people. So, And her conclusion there that we showed you was, so it's not lone attackers, as she said in the beginning as well, it's the jihad stupid. It means all Muslims are killers and they're coming to get you. It's the jihad stupid. That's There's no you know ambiguity of what she's saying. And That's her whole thesis. And did you catch how, by the way, she referred to John Muhammad as a black Muslim, as if that weren't self-evident from his picture that he's black. She's really, you know, there's a little old-fashioned racism there, old-school the racism, thing, too. always icing on the cake. You I know, mean, do you not know yeah, that? Yeah, that never hurts for a racist. He, absolutely. It's the Willie Horton thing all over again. And, and by the way, you know, I do, I always do uh, automatic Google searches on religion, because I write a lot on religion. Do you know how many times I get reports of, of, of Christian preachers molesting children? Not to mention the whole uh, priest scandal. It'd be far easier to make an argument to say that all Christian clerics are, are, are child child molesters. You can do anything you want with individual anecdotal stories. That's how hate mongers project their hate is by taking an anecdotal individual story or, or, or a few of them and making a sort of pretend trend out of it. Now, RJ is 100% right, 0% wrong here. Look, you could take as he, as he said, on, in any category, and and make assumptions, and then paint it for people as all these people are evil, and they're all part of a conspiracy to work together. I mean, imagine if she said this about Jews, right? I mean, she would be the next Mel Gibson if she put together six different Jews who had killed people and said, "Hey, look, it's the myth of the lone Jewish attacker." And, you know, was Ted Bundy Jewish? One of the serial killers. No, Ted Bundy wasn't Jewish. No, was, no. No, was, not at all. He spent money like crazy, that guy. Uh, son of Sam. <laughs> That's right. Son of Sam. I think son of was, Sam was. Yeah, yeah. So you can take Son of Sam and say, the myth of Son of Sam being the lone killer among Jews. And then you list, can you right. find ten Jewish uh, killers in the history of America? Of course! So then you list them and you go, you see? No, but see. It's the, it's the Jews, stupid. Absolutely. See, okay. Right now, well, for instance, in this day and age, you can, you can spew hate about Muslims and Hispanics and why people have not gotten organized I mean just as you know I Absolutely. mean Jewish people have and you know the African American community has I mean to, to try and refute that I mean Bill O'Reilly goes on a show all the time and spews hate against the Hispanic community I mean just throws out the most unbelievable things and why he doesn't get any flack whereas he if you were to say the exact same thing about the Jewish community I mean his career would be over he'd be, and, and he'd be going he'd, he'd be doing the thing like, like I'm totally Muslims totally are, Muslims or people of Muslim descent are absolutely targets for everybody. I've been thinking about writing about it. I mean, even people on the so-called progressive side feel very free to just, and Democrats, certainly, to pander and race bait by, the Dubai thing to me was a perfect example Mm -hmm. that, you know, anytime you can score points, a good way to do it is to use Muslims or people Mm -hmm. of Muslim ancestry as, you know, the new... uh, 
target. All right, and let me give you a, a religious example, too. So she paints all Muslims with that brush. All right, well, let's go look at the Christians, right? I can uh, take you to Matthew Shepard, start just like she did, and say right. the myth of the lone gay attacker among Christians. And then I could list you 100, 200, 2,000 attacks against gays in just the last couple of years. And I could go on and on, then this person, then this person, then this person. And then at the end say... So you think it's just a few Christians attacking homosexuals and trying to kill them? No. All Christians try to kill homosexuals. And all Christians try to bomb uh, abortion clinics, too. You could easily make that. Right. Or so, all Christians are Nazis because the neo-Nazi movement it heavily advertises itself as Christian. So all you have to do is do a listing of the thousands and thousands of Aryan nation and neo-Nazi people and see, see, Christians are Nazis. Same thing. Same thing she's doing. It's so easy to be a demagogue. And that's exactly what she's doing. And the poor, dumb schmucks who go on our website, they love it. They eat it up. Like, yeah, yeah, Muslims, it's, they don't act alone. It's a conspiracy. They're all evil. They're all coming to kill us. They're all killers. But in this society, for whatever reason, as we all just talked about here, that's okay. You can go after Muslims all you want. And and you and nobody's ever going to call you out on anything. Michelle Malkin's going to lose any sponsors for it. She's going to lose a book deal. She's going to lose columns over it. No way. There's not a peep of controversy over it because it's become, as she would say, you know, uh, the 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 demagoguery du jour. You can just you do it all day long and totally get away with it. corporate-owned propaganda masquerading as news? Then listen to the real liberal media at newmediarevolution.org, part of the Progressive Podcast Network. I'm Frank Bruno. And I'm the professor, Matt Matsky. Each week, we bring you a new episode of Bruno and the Professor, a podcast on politics from the great American West. Folks, are you tired of one political party that wants to take us back to the 50s and another one that wants to take us back to the 60s? So are we. Can you be a liberal in the land of wide open spaces? Can you appreciate freedom and individual rights and still respect the environment? Can you love the free market but still want to make sure every American has decent health care and a good education? We think you can. So sit back pop a beer, and shoot the breeze with Bruno and the Professor. Because D.C. looks a lot different from the West Coast. Download the podcast today at brunoandtheprofessor.com or look for us in iTunes.